Welcome back to the living world. I hope you're all doing uh, well. And yeah, it's Sunday, or um, for some of you, Monday of week, the end of week four, which is nuts. And I'm still kind of looking around like, how am I here? And it's about to be week five. We're halfway through um, our classes until spring break. So spring break comes in another month, which I, again, think is crazy. And my sister actually, um, she got sent home from uh, school uh, due to a COVID outbreak. So she's home for a week, which is great because I haven't seen her in like uh, a month and a half. So it's nice to have her back. And uh, yeah, I hope you guys are all still doing okay being at home for uh, if you're in lockdown or if you're not in lockdown or just, just being at home for this crazy time. Anyways, I uh, am excited to be hosting this episode. It's now episode 10 and uh, the school I chose to do this week is uh, Karolinska Institute, which is located in uh, Sweden. And uh, this specific University is located in Stockholm. Now, personally, I've never been, but I, um, if anyone has, or if any of you live in Stockholm or in Sweden, I'd love to hear about uh, what the city is like and, you know, recommendations of places to go when we're able to travel again. Uh, but anyways, uh, I, I'm excited also because I was also able to interview two uh, researchers for this episode. They are two uh, women, Dr. Uh, Malin flodstrom Tulberg and Dr. Virginia Stone, and they worked uh, to head up a study on the development of a vaccine for a virus that might cause type 1 diabetes. Now, I really briefly want to go into the basics of type 1 diabetes. Now, together with uh, type 1 and type 2 diabetes, uh, both of these diseases affect about 420 million people worldwide. And type 1 diabetes is actually the most common chronic disease in children. And uh, the main issue of diabetes is that your body is unable to produce insulin. And insulin is produced in the pancreas. And uh, what's important about insulin is that it uh, will break down the sugar in your blood after you digest food. And this regulation of your blood sugar or blood glucose levels is really important because if you have too high of a blood sugar, this can lead to issues such as... Um, this can lead to blindness if you have too high blood sugar, also a liver failure and potentially death. So it's really important that this regulation occurs. And the specific uh, cells that are um, used to secrete insulin are called beta cells. And these will be discussed in the interview. Um, and these cells uh, secrete the insulin that your body uses to uh, break down the sugar in your blood. Now, what's interesting about this is these two women looked at 
uh, type 1 diabetes specifically for their research. And what's important about all of this is that type 1 diabetes has a lot of unknowns still associated with it. And that's why it's a growing field in research and why there are so many people involved because there's not a lot we know about how it's caused. There's some speculation, but we're not entirely sure of its cause. So that's why it's important to keep looking at these kinds of things uh, in the future. And yeah, I hope you guys enjoy this interview that I conducted with um, Dr. Vlajstrom Tuber and Dr. Soon, and that you learn a bit about their research. So how did you both end up doing the work you do now? Uh, yeah, so um, it, well, it was already in uh, at the university that I was interested in, in diabetes. We have continued in my group to work on, the main focus is type one diabetes, but we have also studied a lot the viruses that have been linked to the disease and more recently, we have uh, what really wanted to ask the questions of whether these viruses are indeed involved in the disease. And the only way we can come up with to, to actually address that question is to make a, a vaccine. And then all of a sudden we had to get into the to the vaccine business. Mm, that's uh, a whole other field, I'm sure. <laughs> yes, but it's very exciting to to. Uh, you know, to go into two slightly different fields and learn new things. It's, of course, it's a bit of a hassle because you have to always learn new things and set up new methods and so on and so forth. But it's also very exciting. And uh, yeah, Ginny, you can tell when you joined the, um, as when we basically were starting to work on the vaccine studies. Yeah. Mm? Okay. No, I didn't. My PhD was in type 2 diabetes research, but with a particular focus on the beta cell and the islets of Langerhans, which are the endocrine cells that contain the beta cells uh, in the pancreas. And I, as I say, I did study more the type 2 aspect, but some of the others in my group uh, were doing type 1 diabetes research and mm -hmm. they were hunting for the virus in the pancreas and seeing if they, they could find it. So I'd found out a bit then when I was um, when I was doing my PhD and when I finished I thought it's time to do something a bit different and an opportunity came up to work with Marlin and I thought it sounded really interesting because I I wanted to do something a bit different and I was had been particularly interested in the the other work that was also ongoing in our in the group that I was in when I was doing my PhD. So it was exciting to stay in the field of type of diabetes, but at least move move diseases. And actually, I think with type one diabetes, there's far more unknown about it. So I moved to Sweden and I've been in Marlin's group for eight years now. That's awesome. <laughs> kind of crazy. I can't believe yeah. it's been that long. And I started off doing more, uh, looking at the interactions between the viruses that we're interested in in the gut and then started on the vaccine work a couple of years after I, I joined and have really enjoyed it. It's been great. That's awesome. Uh, and you both in, uh, in just talking recently, you both mentioned beta cells. And I did my own reading up on type 1 diabetes and I saw that uh, 
the beta cells are where insulin is produced. Uh, so I, I was just wondering if you could go into a little bit of some of the general and some of the specifics of how type 1 diabetes develops, because I know there's a lot of gray area in that. So I was just wondering if you could elaborate for me uh, what you know about it. Yeah, well, <laughs> good question. We know, yeah. <laughs> we know a lot, uh, but the more we research this, uh, the, the more we understand that we, we don't know. And uh, mm. the dogma has been for for a long time that this is an autoimmune disease, mm -hmm. uh, that your own immune system see the, the beta cells as foreign, and that the immune system attacks the beta cells and destroys them. So that when you have lost your beta cells, you then of course don't have insulin, and you cannot regulate your glucose levels, and that you get then you get hyperglycemia, and you get the disease. Um, now, uh, quite a lot of work has been done more recently to look at the uh, human pancreas uh, mm -hmm. in type 1 diabetes. And for instance, Jeannie's colleagues in Exeter in the UK have done a tremendous amount of interesting work. There also uh, there is a consortia in the US uh, called Endpot, and they have also been looking at uh, pancreases from, from type 1 diabetics. And what we have learned is that um, there are quite a number of beta cells left, even if the person is diagnosed with diabetes. Uh, and then the other thing is that before we thought that there was a um, very dramatic inflammation in, in the pancreas, uh, before disease onset and after disease onset. And uh, what we have learned is that it's not as dramatic as we thought. And uh, that's, this has led to speculations that this autoimmune process may be there, but it may not be the sort of the initiator of the disease process. There are a lot of things that we know, but still many things that we don't know. Um, I don't know, Jenny, you want to add a bit? I was going to say that there's a def definite genetic component because mm -hmm. if you have um, if you have certain genes it, or certain types of genes, then it can really affect your susceptibility to the disease. So they, there's a lot of screening that goes on in, um, in Finland in particular, uh, mm -hmm. where they, they screen all newborns to see if they have the the risk genotypes for type 1 diabetes. So we know that there's a big genetic component to the disease and a number of different environmental factors have been associated with it. So virus infections being one of them and vitamin D deficiency has been associated with it and changes in the microbiota and um, dairy and milk and things and gluten has been associated with it. So there's lots of different environmental aspects that have been associated with the disease. But what exactly is happening, we're not so certain about. I, I skimmed your intro and your abstract of your paper. You guys focus specifically on uh, a type of enterovirus called the Coxsackie B viruses. Uh, I was just wondering, what's their role in causing infection in, in humans? And the um, 
uh, Kaksaki B that you studied. I, I was just wondering if you could talk a bit about that and what uh, Kaksaki B's role is in type 1 diabetes. It's a good question. I think enteroviruses are normally pretty common human viruses and mm-hmm. we all encounter them at some point in our lives and the Kaksaki B viruses in particular. I have antibodies against them. I'm Many people do. It, and normally they will cause very mild symptoms. So they might give you a cold or perhaps a bit of a fever or something, but they they are known to cause some more serious diseases. So it's known that they can cause dilated cardiomyopathy. So they can cause myocarditis. They can infect the heart tissue. And that's there's a very proven role for the viruses in causing that. Um, and they've been associated with causing meningitis and encephalitis and various various disease severe diseases mm-hmm. but in most cases they're not too not too dangerous and they don't they don't do too much now with regards to type 1 diabetes we don't actually know if first of all if they're causing the disease and secondly exactly how they might be causing the disease but there's there's evidence that, for instance, the viruses can infect the beta cells themselves. And we know that the virus, the Coxsackie viruses, are capable of infecting beta cells in vitro. So we've got beta cell models and they can infect them and um, alter the function of the, the beta cells. Um, and then that altered function could lead to issues in insulin production, which could lead to type 1. Hypothesis, right? Could be. Yeah, that's maybe. <laughs> or that they infect the beta cells and destroy the beta cells, and then if there's some sort of underlying autoimmune process going on, then if if you've got T cells that will recognize a um, so T cells that will recognize proteins from the or epitopes from the beta cell mm-hmm. then if you have the infection and those are then released after the the beta cells have been destroyed then it might then in turn lead to the the T cells attacking the the beta cells so it could there's there's various different hypotheses no, I again just add that uh, poliovirus is in the same family of viruses. It's a, one, can, one can draw parallels to type 1 diabetes and, and the Coxsackie viruses. I, I didn't know that, like, we're not entirely sure yet. It, it's crazy to, to hear from, from you both that we don't, we don't know that yet. I know your, your study is based around vaccine development, so I was wondering, and it being pretty relevant currently because of COVID vaccine developments and rollouts, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that uh, development process and how it works. Yeah, okay. I mean, maybe I can start a bit. So, um, uh, all vaccines don't look the same and they're not mm. built on the same uh, same thing. So, there are different types of vaccines that are based on the whole virus particle. Uh, there are vaccines that are made on just having a protein from the virus. Mm-hmm. 
And there are vaccines now we know from from Pfizer and Moderna that they they have made these mRNA vaccines where you basically uh, inject mRNA, which is taken up by cells, and then the cells produce the viral selected viral proteins, and then mm-hmm. the body can react to that. Um, so when we got into this um, with making a vaccine against the Coxsackie viruses, we we uh, we were approached by uh, groups in Finland that had been thinking about this for quite some time, and they had also made a prototype vaccine. Um, and um, one of the reasons why they approached us is because we we are quite familiar with experimental work when when you study the immune response to the viruses and so on mm-hmm. um, and how how uh, the immune system fights the virus um, and uh, so it, we did not decide on the design of the of the vaccine it was done by our Finnish colleagues and what they did was that they they decided let's take one of the most uh, efficient vaccines ever made mm-hmm. um, and we use the same approach so um, so what we basically did together then with uh, with Finland was that we produced uh, there are six serotypes in the Coxsackie B family mm-hmm. we produced the six viruses and we inactivated them and we mixed them together mm-hmm. uh, and then we used that mix uh, to vaccinate experimental models, models, and we were then me- first measuring to see if they got an immune response. So, and then we were looking at what we call neutralizing antibodies to the viruses, and we could see that uh, that experimental models they um, responded very well. And then we could also later show that that the vaccinations protected. Uh, the animals from infection. That's amazing mm-hmm. to getting mm-hmm. actual progress in. Mm-hmm. And I know they're experimental models, but that that's a pretty, that's still pretty awesome. Because mm-hmm. I, I I hear a lot about uh, just vaccine development in general and how it's really it really can be hit or miss. Like you develop one thing and you test it and it doesn't work, and you try something else and it doesn't work. And it, it's and I'm I'm wondering because vaccine developments take take a long time i i know it's it's an exception with covid vaccines mm. but i'm just wondering how long this process of yours took along with collaborating with your colleagues in in finland how long it took to develop this vaccine and to test it i think i started working on this in what 2015 so they'd mm. and there had been some other work before me uh, a few years before um and I don't know quite when they started producing the vaccines in Finland, but I'm guessing 2012, 2013-ish, maybe. Uh, a, a little bit earlier. A little bit earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, if you think that our paper on the multivalent vaccine was published in 2020, so that's what 10-odd mm. years that this process has taken. Now, we didn't try the vaccine that has the six serotypes in it to start with we first of all wanted to make sure that when we take in an in 
inactivated CVB1 that that could induce an immune response and we wanted to make sure that that could work before mm -hmm. we mixed it and then we gave a vaccine that contained the six different CVB viruses. Um, so we did a lot of preliminary studies with the CVB1 vaccine and then we started our studies on the CVB1 to 6 vaccine mm. and it it takes time it take it took the animal studies for the paper that looks at the six serotypes they took two three years in total you were limited with the number of animals that we can use at one time in the study and um, we were asking different questions and different things pop up and different ideas come up so it it takes a bit of time to do it having said that i think it was a reasonably smooth process actually because as you said our, our vaccine worked really well and it we got a very good neutralizing antibody response yeah. and we were getting really nice data quite quickly so we were mm. very lucky in that there weren't too many teething problems and um, Did you have to when you developed it? You had you said you had to do for COVID B one. You had to do one test with that. Did you have to do that with uh, serotype two and three and four and so on, or did you just try it with the first one and then mix them together? We tried with CVB one to start with, mm -hmm. and in part that's because CVB one out of the Coxsackie virus CVBs has been particularly associated with causing autoimmunity in. Mm -hmm leading and leading to type 1 diabetes mm -hmm. in a study that came from Finland so we we thought we'd start off with that one because at least there was good reasoning and logic behind choosing CVB1. We tested a couple of the other uh, serotypes so we tested CVB3 and CVB4 on their own mm -hmm. but we felt that actually it was better to then go and test all six because it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort to do all of the individual ones. And actually we have infection models set up for CVB1, CVB3 and CVB4, but we don't for the other viruses. Mm. So it's sort of fitting around and you, you have to think when you're using animal models that you need to make sure you're not using too many mice. So you need to be very specific with the research questions that you're addressing and make sure that you're not doing unnecessary experiments of course uh, so we decided that once we once we knew that the vaccines were working and that they could protect from infection that actually it was better to go on and test all all six in one go and see if that worked so when it comes to the to the vaccine efforts um we did some studies in the non-human private model that we published in this this paper which which mm -hmm. you have read um and basically what we were doing there was to look at the immunogenicity of the vaccine. So we looked to see if if the vaccinated uh, uh, monkeys raised antibodies to to the virus. Mm -hmm. And so we stopped there because that was the, the important information. Next step for the vaccine is to go into human trials. And this is actually being done as we speak. So... Now this project has been taken over by uh, a company which have produced a similar vaccine to the one that we have made and they mm -hmm. have just started the phase one clinical trials. 
Oh, that's awesome. Yes. That's awesome. Yeah, that was my next question. Have you gone to human vaccine developments, testing, anything? Yeah. So this is a company that does this. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, uh, it's very, very exciting. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, as you said, your your research went well. You got data. Now you're on to human trials. How do you do yeah. you do you have any estimates at all from the company? Your own studying of how long those trials might take? I know they're probably stalled right now, but just like any no, kind actually, of. Actually, they 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 are not they are not stalled, and and it's uh, surprisingly positive. They were started in just in the end of of last year. Um, and uh, I think that the, f- the first phase one study includes uh, 32 individuals. That will be, f- be followed for some time um, after vaccination to see. Th- so this is primarily a safety study. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, they will also look to see if, if the, the persons who are vaccinated will develop antibodies to the virus. Um, Exactly how long the phase one study is, uh, I don't know. Uh, but what normally happens is if, if the phase one study is successful, if it needs the endpoint, then of course they will start to plan for the phase two, which includes uh, a larger number of people. Um, that maybe that's another year or two in the future. Still, that, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. I, I would have thought with, with COVID, like all most non-essential or other types of research would be stopped mm-hmm. to focus yeah. on COVID vaccine development. Yeah. But to hear that yeah. your work is, is still going through is awesome. I mean, yeah. it is focused on type on prevention, potential prevention of t- type 1 diabetes. So I, mm-hmm. I guess it would mm-hmm. call that essential. But that I mm-hmm. that's still cool that it's still able to go for you. Mm -hmm. So are you guys still involved with that project or are you looking at uh, going on to a different thing? So now we kind of hang hang in there because we're interested in seeing what's going to happen, but Mm -hmm. it's, uh, this is kind of beyond our expertise and and the, the, the work that we do. So the work that we do is more uh, basic research, uh, but we also, uh, do these type of studies where we, you know, we we look at observations that has been made in humans mm-hmm. uh, or type one diabetes, for instance. Then we think that maybe viruses are involved because there are epidemiological studies and case reports that suggest that. Then you have to take that finding further somehow, and and a way to take such findings further is of course to test. You build up hypotheses based on the on the observations made that you can address in other types of systems. So in, in experimental model systems and and so on. And um, then you can also do what we call proof of concept studies. Is that what we did now for the vaccine was that we mm-hmm. showed that we can make a vaccine, we can vaccinate a host, and we can pr- protect that host from virus-induced diabetes. And that. Um, those proof of concept studies are, are usually very, very important when you want to take an idea into a, a clinical trial. So um, what we will do now is that we will we will continue to work on trying to understand 
how the virus has caused disease because of course now we have we have participated in generating this Coxsackie B virus vaccine. Mm -hmm. But uh, the data that is out there suggests that there could be other enteroviruses that are also playing a role. And uh, of course the vaccine will only, you know, we will only protect against these six enteroviruses. And so one one thing that we are doing is that we are starting to look at antivirals um, mm -hmm. to see if, because currently there are no uh, antivirus that works very efficiently for antiviruses. Um, but of course, an, an antiviral usually have a better capacity to, uh, um, to act on a number of viruses in the same family. A vaccine is very specific to a serotype of, mm -hmm. uh, of a virus. And, uh, an antiviral can go in and block all members of a, of a virus family. So that's one thing which we are looking into very much now. Um, and then we, of course, have other studies ongoing. Um, we're quite interested in, in exploring the possibility to find so-called so biomarkers for virus-induced uh, type 1 diabetes. Because if if you think of it, then, as Ginny was mentioning also in, in the beginning, we think that the virus infects the pancreas and the, mm -hmm. the insulin-producing cells. And that's the reason why people will then, a few people will eventually end up developing diabetes. And how could we know if someone has an enterovirus infection in the pancreas because the only thing we the only tools that we have nowadays is that when you're sick you can take a nasal swab and maybe you can see that okay that person is having an enterovirus infection yeah but most of the time the enterovirus infections they stay in your upper respiratory tract and so they don't go and infect the rest of the body um and and if you are thinking of giving someone an antiviral treatment, you don't want just to say that everyone who looks to be at risk to develop type 1 diabetes will be taking antiviral treatment for the rest of their lives. Mm. You would want to know when to go in with the specific treatment. And, and for that, it would be really nice to have a way to somehow, you know, in a non-invasive way, measure or monitor uh, or survey people for having an enterovirus infection of the pancreas. So we are now setting up new experimental model systems in order to see if we can develop a, a method to detect um, that the pancreas is infected by just measuring something in the blood. Yeah, blood tests, those are easy. Yeah. To, yes. to have that be another facet of one test would be great. Yeah. Because yeah. they're already easy yeah. to take. I mean, my dad mm -hmm. donates blood all the time. Mm -hmm. He's gotten blood tests. My mom, mm -hmm. I have. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they, these are a few of the things that we are currently working on. Mm -hmm. So we're kind of, you know, we, I think we are... We are more basic researchers than applied researchers, but the work we do is very important to bring things on to clinical development. Yeah, of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have a very international crowd. Mm -hmm. uh, of, and of course, in the non-pandemic times, we also have uh, master's thesis students and uh, 
Erasmus students and so on that, that comes and, and spend a, a semester or, or so uh, to work with us. Mm-hmm. But I think in general we are more non-Swedes than Swedes. Would you I'm say in an any? office. Yeah, I would yeah. say non-Swedes. I'm in an office of six and there's a Kiwi, I'm British, an yeah. Italian, a German, a French guy and a Finnish girl. Nice. So we're, nice. We're very, and then next door there's an Argentinian, a Spanish, a Polish, a Nepalese, and a Swedish. There is a Swedish girl next door, so there are a few Swedes around. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's amazingly international. It's yeah, that's awesome. I would say we're a particularly international department. I've got other friends in other departments at Karolinska, and I don't think they're necessarily as diverse as our one is. I think it depends a bit on the area of your of research that you're in mm. but yeah ours in particular is really international mm-hmm. which I love I think it's yeah. <laughs> great Thanks. cool uh, yeah well thank you well good luck yeah, yeah. thank you, thank you. I really enjoyed up. talking with both of you well I hope you guys enjoyed that interview I know I did it was great to talk to uh two women who were head of that study and that wasn't the whole interview actually if you guys want to listen to that whole interview it's a it's almost 45 minutes long i will have a link to it and i will put it up um onto my facebook page after the episode airs on as a uh, google drive shareable link so if you want to watch that whole interview you can Uh, But for now, I want to move on to my uh, second article for the show, which is going to be about some work looking into glaucoma. Now, glaucoma is a disease that can lead to blindness in um, older people. Now, what causes glaucoma is um, it's... It occurs when you have damage to your optic nerve, and your optic nerve is what transmits signals from your eyes to your brain. Now, how you can damage your optic nerve is uh, when fluid builds up that is stored within your eye, and this buildup of fluid can cause your eye to expand, and this expansion can put pressure on the optic nerve. And this pressure is what damages the nerve. Now, just briefly um, about how uh, we see, in case you don't know, because that is also an important factor, because as I said, glaucoma causes blindness. Now, how we see is our eyes use a, a variety of different types of cells, but the main two types of cells that we use to see are called rods and cones. And these are located in the back of the eye. And these rod and cone cells uh, send various uh, signals that you receive from looking out into the world. And um, these rod and cone cells will send these visual signals through various neurons up through the optic, optic nerve into your brain. Now, uh, this is where glaucoma can be very uh, 
detrimental because, as I mentioned, it causes blindness. And glaucoma is one of the leading causes of blindness for people over 60. The most common um, disease to cause blindness is cataracts, which I'm sure most of you know of as well. Now, glaucoma, it affects about 3.5% of people within the ages of 40 to 80. This is about 80 million individuals. Now, how it progresses is it normally starts by affecting the uh, peripheral vision, which is the vision that you see when you like look behind you, and it will later progress. And it usually starts in one eye, but it can go on to affect both. Now, glaucoma can be prevented if it is treated early enough, but if it isn't, you could end up later on with having blindness in one or both of your eyes. Now, I mentioned before, uh, this blindness is caused by damage to the optic nerve. And the optic nerve is damaged, as I said, through a buildup of fluid within your eye that expands and causes pressure. And this expansion of fluid within your eye causes a deformation in the shape of the optic disc within your eye. And this will, this is actually what causes the pressure on your optic nerve. And if you're curious about any of this, you can look, you, you can look it up later. But what is vital to know is that the damage to your optic disc and optic nerve through the swelling is irreversible. So once the damage occurs, you there's nothing you can do to change it. Now, there are two main types of glaucoma. There is primary open angle glaucoma, or POAG, and there is angle closure glaucoma. Now, primary open angle glaucoma is the most common type. It, is, it accounts for about 75% of glaucoma cases. Now, it's usually painless, but it happens slowly over time. And this is because your eye, um, later in life, it's not able to drain fluid as quickly as it should be able to. And eye fluid drainage occurs, um, it occurs from the inside of your eye, and this drainage of fluid within your eyes is different from tears. So you can look at the difference later, but there is a difference. It's not just you have issues crying. It's, it's much more involved than that. And this specific fluid that causes uh, glaucoma with its buildup, it is called aqueous humor. So you can also look at that later if you guys want to. And this is why eye exams are important because doctors are able to look into your eyes through lights and scans and they're able to see if your optic nerve is damaged. So this is why it's important to go to eye appointments to get your checkup every year or more often like every six months. And some people, they may have very sensitive eyes. So even when your eye might be at normal pressure, their optic nerve can be very sensitive and can be damaged even at normal pressure. Now this is rare, but this is another reason why it's important to go to eye exams. So you get these kinds of checkups. Now, angle closure glaucoma is less common, but it is quite a bit more, um, it, it, it's just, it's worse off than uh, 
primary angle glaucoma. And what happens with angle closure glaucoma is some is the iris, which is the colored part of your eye, it will shift within your eye and this can cause a blockage of fluid uh, through blocking the, the drainage port of the fluid within your eye. And if the iris blocks this whole drainage angle, you're like, you're not able to, the fluid in your eye is not able to drain out. This will cause um, very quick swelling of the eye. And this is called an acute attack. Now, these don't happen very often, but when they do, they are, they, you have to go to a doctor right away. Now, normally, if, a, if angle closure glaucoma occurs, it happens slowly. And this slow occurrence of angle closure glaucoma is referred to as chronic acute uh, closure glaucoma. And there are symptoms at first, and you won't know if you have it unless it gets really bad. So again, another reason to go to appointments. And uh, symptoms of angle closure glaucoma can include headaches and nausea, blurriness and eye pain, and if you might see halos or multicolored rings around different lights. And in these, the articles that I'll include in my Facebook page, they have some really interesting videos about all these different types of glaucoma if you want to learn more about them. Now there are some treatments to help prevent the um, the increased damage to your eyes and worsening of glaucoma, but these are limited to right now just eye drops to help lower eye pressure and surgery to help drain fluid out of the eye. And if you guys want to learn more about these different types of treatments, you could do some research on your own to read more about them. Because I didn't know about these before I looked them up, but there aren't many treatment options. So that's why it's really important that work is done in this area. And I want to move on now to talking about the study that was done. So there were researchers from uh, Karolinska Institute, the University of Adelaide in Australia, Columbia University in uh, the US, and the Jackson Laboratory in Maine, also in the US. And this study was published back on December 14th of 2020, and it looked at the pathogenesis of glaucoma, excuse me, the pathogenesis of glaucoma, how it spread, and at potential new treatment options. They found a relationship between uh, the metabolic disturbance in uh, retinal ganglion cells, which are nerve cells, and high intraocular pressure, which is high pressure within your eyes. And these researchers found that when you block these uh, ganglion cell metabolic processes, they're not able to convert glucose and other um, nutrients into the proper uh, nutrients that the neurons need to send signals to the brain. And uh, one, of those, one of these examples of um, nutrients that neurons need and the process that is undergone here is making pyruvate. 
And these researchers found that patients and instances of high intraocular pressures had lower levels of pyruvate. And when they added pyruvate to um, these different um, models, and in this case they used uh, mice for animal models, they saw that adding pyruvate had a protective effect to the eyes, which is awesome. Uh, these researchers also looked at um, the production of a protein called mTOR, which is spelled M-T-O-R. And this is an important protein used in cellular metabolism. They tested um, this by looking at an inhibitor of this mTOR protein called rapamycin, and they found that if you use this rapamycin to inhibit the production of this protein, it helps to protect the neurocells too. And all of this is super promising because it may one day lead to uh, more treatments for helping to prevent glaucoma, potentially a vitamin or a supplement one day, which is awesome. Because I didn't know that glaucoma is, once you get it, it's pretty much an incurable disease. But it's, I, it's great to know that there is some work going into this area. And I want to move on to my final article for this episode. And I hope you guys enjoy it. It's about um, the benefits of physical activity and how it can stall cancer growth. So uh, there are numerous benefits to physical activity. And I'm sure you guys have heard the spiel over and over about how it's good to exercise and get your 30 or 60 minutes a day. Um, but I'll just briefly go over some of the awesome benefits of exercise. Um, so some benefits of physical activity can include it's good for your uh, brain and mental health. Exercising can also help with weight management and reducing the risk for uh, developing later diseases such as cardiovascular disease and it also helps with type 2 diabetes. Uh, exercising has also been shown to help with reduction in certain types of cancers. These include um, bladder cancers, breast cancers, kidney cancers, and a bunch of other cancers as well because there are lots of different types. And exercise also helps with your bone health and density, so keeping your bones nice and thick and strong so you're more, uh, you're less susceptible to potentially breaking your hip when you're older. And uh, the most obvious also is that um, exercise also will help to extend your life, which is pretty self-explanatory. Now, uh, I mentioned at the start of this that this article was about the impact of physical activity on cancer growth. And uh, cancer, if you didn't already know, it's pretty common. Um, there's multiple research institutes 
dedicated to its eradication. And what it is basically is cancer is an uncontrollable growth of your own cells. And these cells continue to grow because they're not able to stop dividing. And this uncontrollable growth can lead to tumor formations. And once a specific uh, tumor gets bad enough, cancer is able to uh, metastasize, which means it can migrate to other parts of your body. And yeah, I mean, pretty self-explanatory. Cancer is one of the biggest threats we face in this century, in the last hundred years. Uh, but yeah, it's a pretty big deal. And that's what was great about this study. And I, I saw it and I was like, wait, what? Another benefit of exercising is cancer prevention. It's pretty awesome. And this specific study, it was published back in October of this year, on October 23rd, so pretty recent, actually. And it involved uh, researchers from the Karolinska Institute and um, both uh, the University of Cambridge and the Francis Crick Institute, which are both in the UK. And this study looked at um, a type of immune cell called the cytotoxic T cell. And it looked at how these cells responded to increased levels of exercise. Now, for those of you who don't know too much about the immune system, which that was me until I took a microbiology class uh, last year, uh, cytotoxic T cells are, cell, are immune cells within your body. And what makes these cells important is they help to kill um, pathogenic cells. And they do this by puncturing holes in the cell membranes. And they will, after puncturing these holes, they will work to induce apoptosis. And apoptosis is programmed cell death. So pretty cool stuff. Cytotoxic T-cells are great. Um, the immune system in and of itself is a pretty complicated uh, set of different types of cells and responses in your body. It's pretty complicated, um, but it is broken into two different um, parts. So within your immune system, you have the adaptive and the innate immune system. And um, the, your immune system also includes your skin, which is a physical defense barrier, your spleen, which houses tons of immune cells, uh, the lymphatic system, which is used to, for immune cells to travel around within. They also travel within your blood vessels, which is awesome, and also uh, mucous membranes within your body. So this includes your respiratory uh, tract and um, places like your mouth and your nose. And that's why you have all this mucus in your nose. Is It's a part of your immune system, which is great. And if you guys want to learn more about the immune system or you maybe want to study it later on, there are plenty of articles and videos about it. Now, um, I mentioned that these researchers look specifically at these cytotoxic T cells and how they responded to an increased level of exercise. 
And they looked specifically at cytotoxic T cells because, as I said, these cells kill um, harmful organisms and cells by puncturing holes in their membranes. And cytotoxic T cells play a vital role in targeting cancer cells. So note why they're the subject of this study. And these researchers looked at the different metabolites that were produced within the blood after exercise. So some examples of these metabolites include, you know, compounds like lactate, and I'm sure there's a bunch of others as well. And uh, what these researchers did is they um, had a group of male uh, human participants, and they uh, did various types of physical activity for um, about half an hour. That's what the article said. And um, after this half an hour of exercise, the researchers took blood samples of their um, study participants and looked at the different compounds that were contained within their blood. And what they found is different levels of these compounds affected the metabolism of the T cells, of the cytotoxic T cells. And what's important about this is the metabolism of a cell affects how um, efficient it is at doing its job. So if you're a cell with a higher metabolism, you'll be more inclined to perform more efficiently at doing different processes. And in this case, the process is killing cells. So pretty interesting stuff. Um, it's always good to see another insight into a field such as cancer, I mean, because any findings we find about cancer are, are great and they should be reported. Now, this study was pretty, um, it, 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 it pretty like first or second level entry because um, there hadn't been too much looking into this impact of exercise on the cell metabolism beforehand, but it's a good sign for future development of this kind of research into this area and field and for potential development of other um, immunotherapies against cancer, because we all know that uh, cancer uh, treatments uh, developments are very big right now because we all want other options than surgery and radiation and hopefully those will occur in the next coming years or decades. And this study also shows again the numerous benefits of exercise. So regular exercise can lead to better health benefits in the future. It's great. It's great. I mean, I'm not doing too much of exercising myself right now, but I'm hoping that when COVID lifts a bit and I'm able to come back to St. Andrews and do things, I'll be more involved and active. And I'm really excited about that. And I hope you guys are all excited about that too, because I know I am, and I'm kind of bummed to not be back on campus for this semester, but I'm excited for next semester. And I hope you guys enjoyed this episode of The Living World. I know I did. I really enjoyed my interview with uh, the two uh, researchers, the two professors who talked about their um, their um, vaccine development process, which is amazing. And I want to thank them again for 
uh, taking time to chat with me. And yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed the show and I will see you all next week.